Welcome to The Pulse. I'm Kamaran Peter, the Executive Head of the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change, an organization dedicated to countering online mis- and disinformation and building tolerance and understanding. I'm here today with Chris Roper, the Deputy CEO of Code for Africa, which is the largest federation of civic technology and data journalism labs on the continent. Chris serves as the director for Code for Africa's forensic initiative, the African Network of Centers for Investigative Reporting. Chris's role at Code for Africa was underwritten by the International Center for Journalists Knight Fellowship. Prior to joining Code for Africa, Chris was editor-in-chief of the well-known Mail and Guardian and editor-in-chief of 24.com as well. Today, we're here to discuss the role of mis- and disinformation in undermining democracy, and we'll be focusing on South Africa in particular. Now, South Africa is not unique in that it's also experiencing significant socio-political division and polarization, a lot of which is, is fueled by online misinformation and disinformation, particularly on social media. It's a global phenomenon, but today we're going to focus a bit on South Africa and, and, and how we're handling it in this context. So many people are working on mis- and disinformation in social media, but you at Code for Africa have taken a novel approach. Tell us about the game you just launched to address mis- and disinformation in partnership with CABC, uh, Digital Public Square, and The Mail and Guardian. How does it work? You know, what's the intention behind it? And what's the response been so far? Sure, thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, so maybe I'll start by contextualizing just a little bit about what Code for Africa does, which kind of leads us to to the, you know, to how we get to the point of this game, um, which I think is called You Versus the Internet. A fairly grandiose title, but kind of what we all experience on social media every day, I assume. Um, so Code for Africa, part of what we do is we work in over 21 African countries monitoring misinformation, disinformation. So using kind of big uh, machine learning, uh, natural language processing platforms to monitor, to listen on social media, to monitor uh, digital news media outlets and, and so on, to kind of get an idea of the scope of uh, misinformation and disinformation um, and get an idea of who is behind it. You know, is it ideologically driven? Is it for profit driven? That kind of thing. So, and Again, part of that is that we have a fact-checking unit called PESACheck, which monitors um, misinformation, um, specifically on Facebook. And I think we're Facebook's third largest fact-checking partner in the world. Um, and uh, there we take down something like, oh, I don't want to misstate the numbers, but it's probably like a couple of million pieces of fake, fake um, of misinformation a year, I would, I would say. So um, all of that kind of gives, gives us an insight around what, um, you know, the scale of the problem and what needs to be done. And, and you know, so there's the kind of investigative side of it, there's the uh, fact-checking side, but I think the most important side, and I think this is going to come up in our conversation today, is is the enlist, is the, is the, the act of enlisting your fellow digital citizens to help you with the fight against misinformation. So part of what this game is intended to do um, is that it is an educational game. It allows you to kind of, first of all, almost fact check your own kind of confirmation biases and your own um, predilection to fall for misinformation by going through a system of uh, a gamified system of questions. Um, but then it also kind of um, teaches you um, around, it teaches you to become aware of things like your inner predilection for 
sensationalism or uh, you know, teaches you to come aware that um, a piece of information that you're about to share doesn't actually have a, an official source, that kind of thing. And what we're hoping is that, and what DPS is hoping, Digital Public Square, is that this kind of educational process um, will be both uh, extremely useful to, to people in that they will become, you know, I guess, trained up to be um, fighters against misinformation in their personal capacity, but also that because it's going to be fun, uh, potentially, that it's something you're going to want to pass on. You know, so it's so it's kind of a, a way to um, mushroom, like a kind of mushroom effect of getting people to think much more clearly about what constitutes misinformation and um, how to safeguard against it. That sounds fantastic because it, I mean, it's one of those critical things in society right now across the world where we've got tech moving ahead of a lot of the regulations, a lot of the codes that have traditionally been in place, particularly in journalism. And what we're really looking to do is create educated consumers of, of, of information. Um, what's, uh, what's been the response so far? Yes, so we've done this in um, South Africa and Ethiopia, and it's um, quite early days in terms of doing a comprehensive analysis of the impact and so on. But um, when DPS have done these this games before, they've had, um, I think they've done it in Tibet, for example, and I think Iraq. Um, they've had um, a lot of great um, response and, and, and produced quite, quite a big impact in terms of, you know, um, people using it and then people spreading it as well. So it's a bit early days for us to see what it is for South Africa because it's just been launched. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously the, 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 the hope is that it will be shared widely. Hmm. Do you anticipate there'll be any specific uh, contextual characteristics that are specific to the continent, and, and I don't mean the whole continent, but the diversity of regions on the continent that might influence how it's taken up, for example? Well, certainly um, the, the games have a uh, country-specific examples. You know, so, so it'll, be, it'll be specific examples about, for example, um, you know, Chinese-sponsored um, uh, content on the independent media platform, for example. So one of the examples will be, you know, here's a, a piece saying that um, the whole Uyghur question in China is not a genocide. Here's a think piece by the Chinese ambassador paid for in independent. Uh, so the game takes you through a process saying, you know, do you think this is um, misinformation or do you think it's trustworthy? If you say you think it's misinformation, it'll say yes, and, and we assume it's because you saw it was sponsored content, you saw it was a government spokesperson. If you say no, I believe it, it'll say, well, you know, you might want to rethink that. You might want to say, you know, you might want to think about the fact that it's, it's a, Ch a Chinese government spokesperson that's paid for content. And of course, as we know, that's also on the independent platform, but I don't think that's actually in the game. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you level up in a gamified way. So if you do answer one incorrectly, you go down a, a level and then you have the opportunity to self-correct. And that would, that's the kind of educational uh, part of it. So it's, um, it's so just to answer your question more specifically, the game's tailored for different, for different um, locations, different countries, different geographical specifics. So it's, it's not going to, uh, you know, even though the, the uh, machinations of misinformation are identical across the continent across the world, actually, you know, the specific examples are going to be different in some countries. And I think um, um, you wrote about this recently in the city press. In some countries, xenophobia is kind of like the most um, uh, lucrative way of spreading misinformation because it's, it buys into a whole bunch, a whole bunch of, of uh, tropes around, uh, you know, 
um, other Africans and so on. Um, whereas, you know, I, I can imagine that in other parts of, of Africa, there would be a different um, kind of major um, trope. You know, say West Africa, it might be around uh, French, you know, neo-colonialism, that kind of thing. So it'll just depend on the country. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, just out of interest, you know, uh, an app like this, you know, could it, uh, is it specifically targeted against for adults or could it also be used like with children and teenagers? Because I think my intuition says we need to start schooling people from a very young age about how to engage with this new media landscape. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And, and the game is targeted certainly not at children. But I mean, you know, your definition of what child is and how news literature child is, I think is going to be, I mean, that's quite a complex discussion. You know, so for example, news on TikTok at a much younger market that requires a, a, a high degree of literacy, a different kind of literacy perhaps to news consumption on uh, Facebook or, or on News24. Um, so I must say, cameras, it's not a question that I thought about for this podcast. But it certainly is a fascinating one. You know, like at what age does a certain kind of news literacy kick in? And at what age does the susceptibility to misinformation change? Is it on a continuum? I don't actually know the answer to the question. It's a fascinating question. Well, we'll earmark it for some academic studies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you spoke about independent media and sponsored content and, and how, you know, the media is being skewed either for, you know, domestic, political, uh, foreign, political, but also economic interests um, in, in this kind of new media landscape. And I use the, the term new here in inverted commas because it's been a long time coming, as you are more aware of than me. I was just lucky enough to read Manufacturing Consent <laughs> very early on in my, in my career. So, uh, you know, I, I'm informed from that perspective. And I was just thinking, you know, in South Africa, but in OECD countries around the world, you know, over the last 10 years or so, there's been a steady decline in the four institutions that produce a democracy, which is government, business, civil society, and media. And South Africa's fared really badly on this Edelman barometer, which is the, the, the measure that's been going now for quite a few years. Uh, and while there are slight changes and shifts in them, Generally, in most of these countries, particularly where we've seen political polarization and disruption, it's, it's, it's been very significant decline in what more broadly can be as regarded as the establishment. But these are core institutions to producing a democracy and particularly media. Turning to South Africa, you know, just drawing on your independent media reference, how are our media and democratic institutions faring? when it comes to supporting democracy? You know, I'm most comfortable talking about media um, um, because, you know, we've been um, immersed in quite a few studies um, around media in different African countries, um, and it's, it's the area we work in. Um, so, you know, if I can start with that one. Um, one of the things that Code for Africa also does is um, we help the Reuters, uh, Reuters Oxford Institute for Journalism to do the um, Nigerian and South African parts of the digital news report every year. And you know, one of the metrics that um, is uh, measured in those reports is trust in the media. And one of the um, unusual things, well, one of the noteworthy things 
um, is that um, the three countries, the three African countries they survey, which are Nigeria, South Africa, and Kenya, um, they show a, a really high trust in the media compared to the rest of the world. So of the 46 countries that are monitored, um, for example, South Africa is uh, second highest trust in the media um, out of all those countries. Uh, Finland is just one, one percentage point higher than us. Uh, and the question, the question is, do you trust your news media in your country? Um, Kenya is six out of 46 of the markets, um, and Nigeria is uh, fourth, I think, yeah, um, at 58%. So there's, so there's an interesting dynamic happening there where, where trust in media in, let's talk about South Africa specifically, trust in media in South Africa is much higher than it is in the, in the rest of the world. Now, for me, trust in media is one of the kind of bastions of, of a democracy. You know, the fact that you, a democracy is based on an informed electorate, um, you know, what informs the electorate, one of the pillars that informs the electorate is a free media. So therefore having a trusted media, I think is a very important, a very positive step for South Africa. But at the same time, the, this trust in media um, extends across all our media titles. I mean, to, to different degrees, you know, News 24 is highest, um, you know, um, and it goes down like a sort of long list. With, we only look at it in 15. Daily Sun is somewhere like second last, that kind of thing. But there's still quite high trust levels. And so on the one um, level, you want to say, look, we're, we're stronger as a democracy because we have trusted media. But on the other level, you want to say, but how come, we're, you know, that people are also expressing trust in titles like independent media? We know blatantly lie I invented 10 babies. You know, how can there still be trust there? So I think one of the things that is happening is that um, our media is becoming, like our political landscape, much more polarised. Where, whereas if you looked at, at, looked, at a, um, looked at this kind of like maybe five years ago, you would have seen a much greater middle, middle, um, middle of the road or rather like a middle of the, of the landscape medium kind of a, a voice where most of our news organizations were kind of in the moderate middle, now becoming much more polarized. So, so your question, you know, I, I think it's quite a complicated answer to say, you know, is something, for example, like the media um, still strong as a pillar of democracy? Yes, it is. But does that mean that, that you know, there aren't some... Um, some kind of uh, pitfalls approaching we have to look out for. And I think, yes, there are, because that trust is something that can be, can be abused. And I think what we find, as, as we'll, you've, you know, you've seen on social media, for example, there's a lot of um, misinformation and what used to be called fake news, um, which plays on the trust. You know what I mean? So, so it's kind of a destabilization that's happening which if we don't be if we're uncareful and we don't push back against it, and of course this game is you know, a small attempt to push back against that, to teach people to, to tell the difference between real news they can trust and you know, brands they, or news they can't trust. Unless we keep pushing back that, I think we're going to see an erosion of that pillar. Um, and I, you know, I mean, the, the other kind of um, uh, pillars of our, of our democracy are things like uh, the independent judiciary as well as independent media, Things like our constitution, and I'm, you know, um, I guess we're all um, very attuned to the attacks on the constitution by the the clowns like Karl Niehaus and um, by the kind of radical economic transformation faction. Although well, better f words than faction for them, but you know, there's 
I mean, we, we're all seeing this kind of these attacks on the media, on the constitution. And it's, I mean, if I was an external observer and not actually, I mean, to live in the middle of it, I would be finding this super interesting to see like, you know, how will this battle turn out? Will the media and the kind of the, you know, the, the NGOs for good um, and citizens, will they be able to push back against this kind of tides of misinformation that are coming from the highest levels down to the lowest, like for profit, fake news sites levels, you know, who's going to win this battle and how's it going to play out? It's going to be interesting if you're an observer. Of course, we're active participants, so it's still interesting, but maybe a little bit more scary. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, in a sense, this high trust in media across the board um, is more representative of how, you know, and I don't want to say this in a pejorative sense, but being not discriminating enough about how we consume media. And because as Herman Wasserman, who we've had on the show before, Professor Herman Wasserman would say, you know, the truth is socially constructed. <laughs> is that the, yeah. the danger is that there's different socially constructed truths being generated from these media sources, which then leave us polarized as a society. And I mean, the, the game is a good sort of starting point to this. But if we look at some of the specific fracture lines, like you mentioned, uh, the Radical Economic Transformation Faction, which is a political project in its rhetoric, uh, in the sense that it's invoking uh, this neo-patrimonial developmentalism, that some compromises have to be made and sort of separation of powers needs to give a, a little bit of way and the constitution has to give a little bit of way in order for us to have the developmental kind of progress that we want. But it has, you know, it, it has pushed certain deep fracture lines in our society. And I want to talk a little bit about those fracture lines. Uh, how do you see them, you know, from a media perspective? What are those fracture lines currently and how is it impacting us as a country? Yeah, I mean, by fracture lines, do we mean, for example, like factionalism within the ANC that plays out in the media as like pro uh so wrong and pause versus, you know, versus pro Jacob Zuma, those kinds of fracture lines? And more broadly in society, you know, yeah. uh, where society itself is more polarized in, you know, you, like you said, you know, there was a kind of moderate middle that the majority of society subscribed to before. But now there's a hodgepodge and a mix of very different kind of media streams all of which are being trusted by the public. Uh, how is that translating into our social political fabric as a society? You know, so beyond, I suppose, the ANC, but us as a society itself. I mean, I think one of the effects of, of this kind of proliferation of what you're calling uh, fracture lines, um, but which could also be called like a multiplicity of um, of different voices, but not voices in the kind of um, academic sense, but like actually a lot of people shouting a lot of stuff. I think, you know, one of the um, um, results of that is that a language is being created where um, because of access to social media platforms and so on, where people are starting to be driven into niches, into uh, factions, um, into almost like hermetic interest groups. I mean, if we're going to talk about institutions like an Afri Forum would be one of those. Uh, mm -hmm. Or what are those idiot cake people called? Um, 
over there. The, the, the secessionist. <laughs> I suppose morons. Um, not to, to find a point in it. Um, you know, you, you're driven into, into those positions, but of course, all those positions are also um, revenue generative positions, you know, and also um, kind of positions where you can uh, accrue a certain kind of power. And I think, um, so on the one level, that I think is also one of the um, positive paths forward for media in that you can now create niche audiences. You know, so, so just to take a step back and look at the kind of condition of media ecosystem as a whole, um, the problem there is that only the big players are earning enough revenue to do to do a lot of journalism uh, because it's kind of a model of the volume is privileged. Um, not volume in terms of shouting as well as the volume in terms of, um, you know, how many readers you have and um, how much product you're producing. Um, but the fact that, that people are now being kind of forced to consider themselves as um, defining themselves as niches means that they can now cleave to niche news products, for example, like a daily merit audience, for example, would be the, the, you know, the most obvious kind of uh, example of that. Um, so, so it's kind of both, both a, a strength of the way media, the media system is evolving, but in terms of the societal infrastructure you're talking about, I think it's got you know, massive, massive opportunity for misuse, of course, you know, um, you know, I mean, um, you know, and we've seen um, all the kind of uh, RET and um, sessionists, all kinds of different groupings that, that are kind of like coalesce around each other on social media. So, so I think, I mean, you know, if I was going to just like make a blanket statement, I'd say it's one of the most dangerous moments for our democracy um, in terms of, um, you know, kind of like uh, ideolog ideologically speaking, it's one of the most dangerous moments because of that like, fractured multiplicity of, of voices and how many bad actors there are taking advantage of that. But at the same time, I mean, you know, the, I think maybe, maybe you were writing about this. I was reading something about it last week. Um, at the same time, it's kind of like what a democracy is, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, democracy is supposed to be this, uh, a, you know, a free for all of, of, of uh, everybody getting a say and you know a consensus agreement being reached, whether the there's enough space, time, and and um, and kind of room for application in the way discourse works at the moment, you know, with this kind of like um, daily barrage of new messages, whether that's whether we can take advantage of of these multiple voices having access to platforms is another question. I think you know. So I would say you know. I'm both pessimistic and optimistic about about the effects of of this multiplicity of voices. Yeah, so we, we, the Sorry about no, that. no, that was a great answer. Thanks, Chris. I think you, you know your expertise is really coming through in terms of enlightening us. You know, you know, you spoke about you know being at a dangerous point in South Africa, and and I think anecdotally, from my perspective, I've seen a lot of similarities between what's transpired in the U.S. And I say this anecdotally because it's not something I'm studying actively. Uh, but from a lot of colleagues and friends who have been in the U.S., who actually some of them are leaving, have really felt like the, the social and the political contract in the U.S. has broken down. And w my sort of anecdotal observation is that that's kind of what's been happening in our country as well. In fact, there's a, quite a lot of spillover between the kind of 
conspiracist discourses in particular between the U.S. and South Africa. And in some of our work, we found that, you know, there was a lot more of it in South Africa than in other countries that we studied in the continent, you know, particularly with respect to COVID vaccine hesitancy, for example. So, you know, just in terms, I mean, so more broadly as a journalist speaking about our country, you know, how close are we to that point of collapse in your estimation? And I realize you don't have a, a crystal ball, none of us do. And speaking to the role of social media, how significant has that been just in your view? Not, not necessarily in terms of like, you know, quoting all the Oxford studies on it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, my answer to the first part of the question would be you're really asking the wrong person. I mean, you, you know, I, I would way rather defer to the experts on on um, on the evolution of our, of our democracy and of um, the current state of, of our democracy. Um, but if I'm allowed to speak in terms of even my personal kind of anecdotally um, learned understanding of it, which again, I must emphasize is not uh, one that anybody needs to take seriously here, but, um, you know, the, the first glib answer would be we're as close to disaster as we've ever been and as we've always been. So I don't think anybody looking back at the history of, of the recent history of South Africa is going to say, you know, oh my word, everything was fantastic and look at us now. I mean, you know, all the problems we're living with are fairly old problems. I mean, old in our, our democracy, which of course is a super young democracy. So, you know, just like last week's problems for, for kind of older democracies. You know, so, so I mean, the, the kind of like the, the the descent into incompetence and irrelevance of the ANC has been happening for, you know, a couple of decades. I mean, you know, Jacob Zuma is a 15-year-old problem, essentially. So I guess we've always been tiptoeing around disaster as a country in some cases. I mean, you know, it's, of course, there, there are many um, uh, positive tales you could tell about South Africa, but I think, you know, the, the kind of messy business of creating democracy has just begun, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say, you know, are we at a worse moment now than even before? I would say no, except for the second part of the question, and that is the impact of misinformation, disinformation, the impact of um, you know, how social media platforms, how dark social, um, the impact that has on, on kind of breaking up the, 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 the workings of our democracy. It's, it's not to say that those voices haven't been, um, haven't always been at work in our democracy. You know, the, um, the voices of those trying to evade, evade accountability and um, responsibility and that kind of thing, but I think because of the condition of, of how truth is now seen globally, speaking very, very broadly, you know, the mm -hmm. impact of things like the, the, the kind of descent of the American democracy into, um, you know, a facsimile of, of what it purports to be and purported to be, um, that has given strength to a lot, of, a lot of bad actors in our country and, and across Africa, actually. You know, I mean, my, my, I just remember an example of... Um, during the SARS um, protests in Nigeria, of Nigerian police um, using extreme violence. And when asked, you know, how could justify doing that, saying, well, Donald Trump had said that it was okay for police in America to use extreme violence. So that kind of like directly one-to-one -one correlation. It's not, you know, mm -hmm. it's not as if it's just kind of like, um, 
hypotheticals, direct one-to-one -one correlation. And I think the the, the way people like um, Jacob Zuma and um, Iqbal Sirius of the world have decided that flat-out lying is okay, and the way that that their supporters have, in the same way that Trump supporters have bought into it, have decided that it's not a lie um, if they're telling it. You know, it's only a lie if somebody else is telling it. I think that is maybe changed quite fundamentally the um, the nature of threats to democracy in, in South Africa. But right now, in the last couple of years, um, the way that uh, misinformation and and uh, propaganda has been weaponized seems a lot cruder than 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 it was you know, ten years ago. You know, I mean, I, I recently, well, not recently, around December, January, wrote a piece where, you know, out of pure trying to understand the different movements that were transpiring and what that meant for the country and what kind of threat it presented. And, you know, just among them were things like, you know, unemployment, which was soaring. You know, globally, the wage gap has been increasing really since the, the, the 80s. You know, that we have deep poverty uh, and, and recently we learned, you know, inflation is at its highest in 13 years. And I think it's provided a kind of, uh, you know, especially if you combine it with the gross inequality in our country, which by some measures, like the World Bank, has been the highest in the world for a long time, even higher in our cities. It provides that fodder uh, for exploitation of, of people who are, of, of people on all sides of the spectrum, actually, or on all parts of the spectrum. And so my feeling, or the way of thinking about it was like, we just don't know what thread could be pulled that unravels, unravels the whole carpet. Um, but interestingly enough, I got a lot of responses, you know, on the Facebook feed, which I always pretend I don't read, but I did read this one. There were a lot of South Africans who expressed that opinion that, you know, we're used to going to the brink and we're not going to believe in the disaster stories anymore. And, and I think that's true to a large degree. We have a history of going to the brink and coming back because we, we do have a social fabric that somehow manages to hold together despite the different challenges that it's placed under. But I think we should never be complacent uh, it's important to keep in mind, like, to be watching and to be, you know, watchdogs for democracy and for social cohesion and for for active citizenry in the country, making sure that that is what underpins our democracy. So, I mean, taking these kind of, like, optimistic and, and, and threats into account, how do you see things unfolding? And I suppose more pointedly, what role can the media play you know, and I know it's a fraught landscape uh, because of changes in how the media is functions today, you know, its business models, the works. But what's the vision for a kind of new new media? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to have the arrogance to, to attempt to answer the question, you know, with some, with kind of a commitment. But what I will say is that there's no one answer, obviously, but equally there's not even a dozen answers. There are unfortunately hundreds of answers. So, so because of the nature of the contested terrain of democracy at the moment in South Africa, which is kind of like reflected globally as well, there are so many moving parts to disinformation. I mean, I'm saying disinformation, but I mean kind of a tax upon democracy. There's so many moving parts. I mean, 
you know, just taking one random example, you know, 10% of all ad spend, um, digital ad spend globally, um, sorry, not globally, in America, 10% of, of digital ad spend goes to fake news websites. So 10% of all the money that corporations spend on advertising goes to actually fund the misinformation industry. It's a massive, massive amount of money. And it's similar in South Africa. So just that one example, you know, if we could say to corporations, let's do something about the 10% that you are that you are funding misinformation with without knowing that you're doing that. Let's take some of that and use that to fund new, reputable news, for example. That's one intervention which immediately would strengthen democracy massively, right? And, and I mean, they're, they're kind of like hundreds of those examples um, you know, of, of, of kind of contested er sub-areas in a democracy that we need to attend to. Um, and that's kind of quite a, um, a daunting prospect, I think. Um, but what underpins all of that is education, data, knowledge, you know, the kind of unpacking of those problems. And that's the role that the media plays. And I, I don't envisage a, actually no, I do. I mean, I think that the new way of operating for the media that would benefit democracy uh, dramatically is to kind of almost go back to an old way of operating, which is predicated upon social media. So it's kind of the old and the new put together, which is the cultivation of community. Um, you know, so I think we've become we've become victim to the to the kind of uh, broad volume based, you know, programmatic advertising platform driven kind of way of dissemination of knowledge, and that has broken many democracy, many kind of parts of the American democracy, of the European democracies, of our democracy. I think we need to fight back quite um, dramatically against that kind of platform domination, mm. um, and part of that is to exploit what those platforms have created, which is these kind of very polarized niched communities. Because polarization is a you know a negative a negative term, but also, you know, it's not if you're thinking of it thinking of it as like groups that have their own specific take on the world, that's not that negative. Right? So it's it's kind of like we need our media to cultivate the relationship. I think we spoke about it at the start of this, that relationship of trust that still appears to exist in South Africa, for example, with the media. Um, to a degree, they need to cultivate that. You need to get the citizens um, and the media working together on the problems. Uh, it's, you know, it sounds a little bit, um, what is the word, um, idealistic. It sounds a little bit idealistic. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it's it's kind of like, it's, it's both a business decision as well as a kind of, um, um, a decision that's driven by wanting to do good in the world. And I think that that kind of a sweet spot is what we need to work to, work towards, what the media needs to work towards. Of course, the media is a, also a, a massive shambling, um, totally not um, homogenous edifice as well. But in, you know, in general, that's what I would say. It needs to be much more of a collaboration between media houses and the audiences that cleave to those media houses. And it's got to be um, a turning away from the kind of volume-driven, mass consumption kind of news. Mm, there's some very interesting examples of that. You know, in some of the work I've done um, previously in my career, I've looked at projects like the Map Kibera project, uh, which is an informal kind of settlement just outside Nairobi, which originally began with trying to put together a census where they thought 
you know, it was a million people who lived there and they got the citizens, particularly youth involved in the census and then found, well, actually there are 200,000 people. So it's a different scale of urban management challenge. Yeah. Then they got the youth involved in reporting in into the sort of urban development challenges that were, you know, if there's a flooded road here so that, you know, the authorities could direct their resources more efficiently. Then they had a radio station, I think it was BBC funded, and they played quite a, a role even during the, the electoral unrest in Kenya that occurred not in the previous election, but even the, the previous one. And so, you know, it, it becomes very viable. And I think the, these new experiments, uh, I, 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 my view is very similar to yours in, in terms of, of, of what can get active citizenry engaged with the media in a very positive way for society, you know. Uh, you know, particularly being able to have the kind of debates that we would have had in town halls previously, but to have constructive debates about, and, and so, so things that actually start brokering a social compact in, in, in democracy. Can I just jump in there? Um, because you remind, yes. you remind me of something that I probably should have said. I mean, what I'm suggesting is not something, um, you know, that is particularly original. So you're absolutely correct. You know, um, that is what is already being done. And even in, our, you know, even, not even, but in South Africa, um, I think people like News24, Daily Maverick, uh, at Ground Up, um, you know, they all are doing this, you know, even the, the big behemoth uh, News24 has an, a membership um, component now, a subscriber component where you get, um, you know, where, where the relationship is that you are paying them for, for kind of premium content, but also premium experiences, getting to talk to the editors, that kind of thing. So it's, so it's not like, you know, um, I, I'm not claiming this is an original idea that I think that, that will be the next big thing. I think it's happening now, but what I am saying is that Everybody has to has to has to come to this um, democratic party, so to speak. Um, you know, I don't think it's enough buying from business, for example, to this to this idea. I don't think it's enough support for those for those media houses. Uh, I mean, there might be some support for for you know Daily Maverick and for News Twenty Four, but those are not enough voices, of course. There's a, you know um, there are a whole other other swathe of interest groups that need to be serviced uh, served. And I think you know that's that. So, so the kind of projects you're talking about are um, one aspect of it, but I think it's also the aspect of of turning um, the major media houses into community newspapers as well, so to speak. Um, you know, not that News Twenty Four would like to be described as a community newspaper, but just like a really big community newspaper. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and I think I mean, an example like the one you're talking about in Kenya is we worked on a project called Map Makoko. Um, so Makoko is this um, floating, um, floating, I guess, floating slum, it was called initially, but a floating village um, um, in Lagos, which has about 300,000 inhabitants. And what we did there was we trained, um, and there's no kind of like mapping of other documentation. We trained um, young women to use drones and canoes to map that um, floating um, town. And you know, the result of that was that there was a much better um, service delivery, much better um, communication between government um, and, and inhabitants. 
uh, became much safer things. So I think it's both those things. It's it's like it's getting communities involved in their own communities, but then also communities communities of ideas. You know, so like pro democracy communities. Um, you know that whether the um, kind of um, identifying factor between all the members is not class or race or income, but actually this kind of ideology, um, which I know can quite dangerously shift to some kind of fascism, but, but I think you know what I mean. You know, like we need to get people involved and into a trusted relationship with news organizations. Yeah, I'm familiar with Makoko Settlement because it's another one of the case studies I, <laughs> I regularly write about. Um, you know, as a last question, and as a bit of a stretch point here, I noticed you mentioned the role of the platforms. And it's something that interests me um, quite deeply at a personal level. You know, Facebook and Google, for example, are platforms that are largely run off centralized algorithms. And there have been critiques of, of how this manifests in the formation of echo chambers and reinforcing uh, your biases and preferences and feeding you information that you're more likely to, to consume, but then which makes you more ignorant of other views, for example. And I wonder what your take might be, you know, particularly from being in the kind of organization that, that you, you're running. You know, there have always been alternatives in the tech world. I, I, when I first became a student, started coding, it was all done on Linux, <laughs> you know. And, and nowadays we have the emergence of blockchain, for example. What, what potential, just as a parting speculative <laughs> um, uh, point, what potential do you think that those kinds of new platforms have for perhaps changing the landscape? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's obviously a, a, a complex question. I mean, I think um, in our experience of making pronouncements about new tech platforms, we have learned that the answer is always we'll have to wait and see because um, who knows what will survive. But I do think things like blockchain have a, a lot of, there's a lot of potential positive impact in terms of um, kind of, you know, uh, accelerated freedom of the press, um, of being able to free yourself from kind of conventional revenue con constrictions. Um, I think that the kind of rise of AI, although of course that's been with us for a long time, but the kind of like um, some peak in interest in AI and the kind of um, accelerated um, interactions um, that news media is having with AI around the ethics of AI and how to use it and that kind of thing. I think that's also going to be um, something that has a potentially massively positive impact because it's going to allow news organizations to um, to really speak to a multiplicity of audiences or, or you know kind of have a more direct um, conversation with mem members of the audiences I think so you know I think that's there's a lot of positive potential um, but I also think that you know I was saying the same thing about Facebook and Twitter many years ago. And, you know, I was right, but also you know, calamitously wrong as well. Um, because, you know, the more the more the landscape is opened up, the, the more um, opportunity there is to kind of lose focus and to lose audience and lose revenue. You know, so, I mean, one of the things that old school journalists used to insist on was, um, you know, that it was good to, to listen to your audience. 
you know, that you had to give your reader what your reader wanted, because that was the kind of contract, you know. Um, and that's kind of what the Facebook and platform algorithms are doing, right? They're giving readers what the readers want. Um, so, you know, if your proposition or if, or if one's proposition is actually we know better, we should know better than the algorithm, what the reader wants, we should know better than the reader what the reader wants. Um, you know, that's also an interesting question. Like, where do we draw the line here? You know, obviously the, 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 the platform algorithms are based on uh, producing revenue for the platforms. So, um, you know, but maybe that's the case with media as well, you know, that our choices are also about survival and sustainability. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I don't think we can tell um, really what the impact of, of new technologies are going to be. Um, but I do think that it's, uh, you can't put genies back in bottles. So, um, you know, the, the best that I think the media can do is to make sure that they you know, are along for the ride uh, by choice rather than just as collateral damage. Thanks, Chris. I suppose in many ways, you know, revolutions, you never know which way they're going to go. <laughs> and so yeah. even revolutionary changes in tech and in different sectors, um, it's hard to predict. But I suppose what you're saying is that, you know, the good principles of journalism and the codes of conduct in journalism will probably stand the test of time, um, even though we have yet to see. <laughs> I think I'm hoping that. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, I mean, another whole area of conversation could be, you know, whose AI are we going to bar to? Is it going to be Chinese AI, you know, uh, US, US priest AI? Who's, who's, um, whose system of, um, uh, of privacy laws are we going to be able to afford? Can we afford to to the kind of privacy and security that Europe demands? Or as you know, a poor nation and a poor continent is 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 privacy a luxury? Are we going to go with you know some other some other form of um, of interaction with technology, um, which you know makes sense to our peculiar conditions? So that's another another kind of question that we're going to you know. I mean, we, one of the promises that we are definitely pawns in some kind of major, um, you know, major na uh, nation's power plays as well. So there's just so much that, that we have to keep an eye on. You know, it's not just simply is the technology good, it's where does the technology come from? You know, is it good for us? Uh, what are we going to have to sacrifice? That kind of thing as well. Mm, and to what ends <laughs> it is is it is orientated chris i want to thank you for you know your honest and thoughtful answers and for really um doing your best to respond to what has been quite a wild array of questions <laughs> and thank you very much for joining us on the pulse and i'm quite sure our audience are gonna be very interested in the views that you've shared uh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, some tough questions. Um, I hope we dealt them well. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Another episode of The Pulse where we break down the issues affecting you as honestly as we can. Thank you, Chris, for your time and your candor in talking these issues through.